It's really good to be here with you this morning. Uh, such a privilege to join with you in worship, to be guests. My wife, Ann, and I are so thankful uh, to Pastor Scott and Megan for the invitation. Uh, I will admit that when Scott asked me to come and speak on MLK Sunday, I, I, the, the weight of that was not lost on me. And I thought, are you sure you have the right guy? But then I thought, you know what? It's different because I, I started in the covenant uh, in August, so just at the tail end of an election season that was, you know, super chill. And, um, and it was always really tense. You know, conversations about race and justice always were, were escalated. Uh, but then I thought, you know what? <clears throat> Actually, we have an opportunity to carve out a Sunday to talk about issues of race and justice and the church. Uh, actually gives us permission to not escalate. Um, but to have uh, a, a conversation where instead of heaping condemnation, uh, we ask God, what are you inviting us to as your people? Uh, and so I, I be- become more and more excited about that because we have this great opportunity. And so I'm thankful for the, the chance to be here with you this morning. Uh, as Scott said, I work in uh, Love, Mercy, Do Justice with Cecilia Williams, and, and it is a real privilege to get the opportunity to be a guest in congregations like this that are wrestling with what does it mean to be God's faithful people. So uh, would you join me in prayer as we begin this morning? Gracious God, we come into this space uh, with heavy subject matter, and we come to it this morning... Um, seeking to hear from you. As your people, we gather in spaces like this not to be entertained or educated alone, uh, but to be invited deeper into life with you, each of us individually and as your people together, that we would be shaped through the power of your spirit and your word so that as we leave, uh, we might bear your image more faithfully to the world. So that's our prayer this morning. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Just uh, a couple of days ago, I was listening to uh, This American Life podcast from um, a month or so ago. It was uh, called Kid Logic. You may have, if you listen to the podcast, you may have heard this. The entire podcast was, it was actually rather hilarious. It was talking about the different ways in which kids can uh, make a series of very logical deductions and then end up with totally illogical conclusions. Uh, my kids do this all the time. But one story in particular landed with me, particularly as I was preparing for this. The story was of a dad, and he said that uh, it was just a few weeks before Christmas, and his four-year-old daughter was beginning to ask what Christmas was all about. And so he said, well, uh, Christmas is the, the, the season where we celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus. And she wanted to know more about that, and so he took her to the store and bought her a kid's Bible, and they brought it home, and they began to read all of the different stories about Jesus. And she fell in love with all of the, the, the stories of Jesus and the wise men and the shepherds and all of this. And he said it was, a, it was an incredible experience. But then, just a few weeks after Christmas, they were driving down the road, and they went by a Catholic church, and there was a big crucifix out front, and she said, who's that guy? And he realized in that moment that he had sort of forgotten to sort of finish the story. And so he said, well, actually, that's, uh, that's Jesus. And uh, they had spent a lot of the time talking about uh, what Jesus uh, came to do, and they sort of landed on the phrase that, you know, Jesus came to, to talk about the, the idea that we should do unto others as 
we would have them do unto us. That was how he tried to explain it to his four-year-old. And uh, she said, well, why did he die? And he said, well, you know, Jesus, as he came and he preached that message, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, actually the, the, the rulers and the, the leaders, they, they thought that was not a good thing. That was kind of so radical for them that they, they actually killed him for his message. And of course, this four-year-old is devastated by this story. And he continues to tell the story that just a few weeks after that, it's, of course, Martin Luther King Day, and his daughter doesn't go to preschool on that day, so he took the day off work. And she was confused about why he was at home. And he said, well, today's Martin Luther King Day. And she said, well, who's that guy? Well, you know, he was a preacher. Oh, like Jesus. He said, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, I suppose that uh, he was. Uh, and she said, well, what did he talk about? He goes, well, you know, actually, like Jesus, that sort of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that, 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 that Martin Luther King came and he preached this idea that no matter your skin color or, or, or life circumstance, that, that we all deserved the same kind of treatment. And she said, well, that, that's, that's amazing. He said, yeah, you know, the, he went around and he preached this message. It was pretty much the same message as Jesus. And his four-year-old daughter thought about it for a minute and said, well, did they kill him too? Really landed with me in a new way. That significance of what we remember this weekend. And the struggle and the message that was not received and is in some ways still not received. But as I thought about that even this week, I thought, you know what? Growing up in the church, I would have been uncomfortable with any kind of comparison between Dr. King and Jesus. The church world that I grew up in did not make that comparison ever. Uh, There were probably a number of reasons for that, but it was just not in my schema of understanding. And I don't think it was just because I was a little kid and you didn't talk about those topics in my church with little kids. Because when I was in my doctoral program, we had a class on uh, race in the church, and we were reading through Dr. King's sermons, and one of my cohort members was, was talking about how offended he was that, some, that our professor would assign Dr. King's sermons uh, for this class. Because Dr. King is liberal and, you know, it doesn't really fit in this theology class this way. In the church world that I grew up in, that would have been very normative. To be uncomfortable with the comparison between Dr. King and, and the message of Jesus. And I've asked myself the question on numerous times, Why? Why would I have been uncomfortable with that? What is it that accounts for that divide? And I can think of at least two reasons. There's probably many, but I can think of at least two. The first is that what some have said, I think is true, that the church in America suffers from its own kind of leprosy. You know, the disease leprosy where parts of the body are in pain and other parts of the body are unable to feel that pain, I think accounts for a big part of that divide. That whole swaths of the body of Christ in America have lived under extreme pain and oppression and injustice, and whole swaths have not, but the leprosy that has infected the body makes it such that those of us, myself included, who have not felt that pain, it's very difficult to identify with it. There's a lot of people today who live 
with uncertainty and feel vulnerable and feel fearful about the future of this country as it relates to the issues of race and justice. Uh, I don't know if you get the Covenant Newswire, but uh, President Gary Walter, uh, the president of the Covenant, uh, wrote a letter and he talked about that, that, that right now, huge sections of this country and huge sections of the body of Christ are experiencing those things. And those fears are real, he says, natural. Then he said this, if we won't understand it, if we won't understand that pain, we'll never be able to heal the divide. We'll never be able to hear the divine. I want to commend you all because Sundays like this is part of how we begin to do that. It's not the whole thing, but Sundays like this where we set aside time to to broach a potentially uncomfortable topic is part of how we begin to bridge that divide. And so I I think it's fantastic that, is this four years now or so, of, of setting aside significant time and space to think through these things. But I think in, in the larger sense, the second thing that I think creates that divide is that the lenses that we use to look at the world are so, so different. The lenses that we use to look at the world are so very, very different. I was invited to do a workshop on race and the church on Saturday, November 11th which was just a few days after Tuesday, November 8th. And I thought, are you sure we want to talk about race in the church just a few days after a pretty controversial election? And as I was preparing for that week, I kept thinking about the movie National Treasure. And ironically, I show up at the hotel to check in for this workshop, and National Treasure is playing on the screen in the lobby. And the reason why is because if you've seen the movie, if you haven't, it's like 20 years old, so I'm not ruining anything. Um, the, the, uh, they, they find this treasure map, of course, and when you look at it, it's just a blank piece of paper, right? Because you have to have the little glasses that go with it. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And the glasses are weird because there's like four different sets of lenses on each one. And depending on the combination of lenses that you use, you see something different sort of come out at you. To understand the whole map, you have to continue to lower different lenses. I'm convinced that that image is part of why, part of what creates that dynamic, this divide between the body of Christ so often along racial lines, is that we may be looking at the same set of experiences, but we do so through such different lenses. But we are so convinced that the lenses that we use to look at that experience is the only way to look at that experience. Only by lowering a different combination of lens will we see things differently and begin to heal that divide, as President Walter talked about. And that can be frustrating and it can be painful, but I think the best thing we can do is to put ourselves in positions where we are forced to see things from a different lens. That's what I'm hoping to do this morning. I want us to look very quickly at three stories from Scripture that I think have a single thread that runs through them, a single uh, sort of unifying idea. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, until very recently, I wouldn't have seen the connection between them. So, so if you don't see it, hang with me, because I think it's there. Uh, and if you don't see it, come afterwards and we'll talk more about it. But, uh, but real quickly, three stories, and we're going to see, hopefully, what God might have from us for this. The first story is the story of Joseph. 
from Genesis chapter 37. I forgot my flannel graph at home or I could have reenacted the story very, very well. Uh, but, but the story of Joseph, of course, Joseph is one of the youngest sons of Jacob or Israel. He's the one that's treated the best out of all of them. They went and made a Broadway musical about him. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's other brothers, we find out, really don't like him all that much. And the reason his brothers don't like him all that very much is because Joseph is a very brash, young, idealistic guy who has dreams. He has these dreams, and unfortunately those dreams mean that his brothers are going to lose their position. Because they have position of authority over Joseph. But the dreams that he has with the stalks and the stars and all of this means that they're actually going to have to let go of that authority over Joseph. And they hate that. They hate it so much that they decide they want to kill him. And in this very famous uh, section of Genesis chapter 37, the brothers see Joseph coming to them from a long way off and they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in this cistern and, and, and tell him that a wild beast, tell our dad that a wild beast devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of those dreams. And I don't want to leave that story just for a second, but let's notice what has happened right here at this point. Is that we have this story where a single solitary figure has this violent mob rise up against him. Let's leave that one right there and go to the second story, which is a very famous story on its own. It's John chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It's the story of the woman at the well. And in the story of the woman at the well, you have the exact same dynamic happen. You have a single solitary figure and a violent mob rise up against her. You have the same result. It's a very different reason that makes it happen, right? Joseph has the violent mob rise up against him because he's young and brash and idealistic. And all of that idealism comes across agitatingly to the people around him. It comes across as arrogance and pride. But here is this woman who doesn't have that issue at all, but she's brought out before this violent mob because she is sinful and broken. Her indiscretions are on display and this violent mob rises up in condemnation of her sin. So very different stories, but the exact same dynamic is the result. The third story I want us to reflect on is the story of Jesus himself from John 19. You'll see the text behind me here, and of course, it's a very famous moment, well known. But Jesus himself finds himself as a solitary figure with a violent mob rising up around him. Not because people see him as young and brash, not because he is sinful and he needs to be condemned for that sin. But in fact, we know that Jesus is this solitary figure with a violent mob rising around because Jesus... Jesus is willing to absorb that pain. Jesus is suffering the threats of the violent mob for the sake of others. Jesus is a suffering servant. As I thought about these three stories with that unifying connection, I thought, actually that makes sense because this is what happens all the time throughout all of human history. The dynamic of these lone figures 
with violent mobs that rise up. That happens all the time. And in the history of the United States, that very often happens around race. In fact, that's what happens with Dr. King. When I think about the life of Dr. King, I actually see all three of these stories happening. I see this young, brash idealist who had dreams, but those dreams were going to require the people that had power to let go of some of it. And so those dreams came across as arrogant and prideful. And so people rose up. In Dr. King's life, but more specifically after he was killed, Dr. King's sin and brokenness and indiscretion came to the fore and people would use that as a rationale to condemn him rather than to listen to what he had to say. And if I had to wager a guess, I would bet you that that's why in my church life growing up, we didn't pay attention to Dr. King because he was sinful. He had done things that were wrong. So just like the woman at the well was condemned because of her sin, many, many, many have condemned Dr. King because of his indiscretions. At the same time, though, you cannot, you cannot deny that Dr. King, like Jesus, was willing to suffer for others. He was willing to be that suffering servant, to lay his life on the line so that other people might thrive. When I think about the life of Dr. King, I see all three of these stories going on. But I want us to think about it a little more because if I'm honest, this is the kind of thing I do in my everyday life. Maybe for all of us. If you're like me, I know I am. But if you're like me at all, you, you can probably find some examples of places or times in your life where you have joined in with some kind of mob. Acting out hate and and, and all the like. Maybe not violence, but you've joined the mob against someone or against a group of someone's. I know that I can name time after time where I do this. I can name time after time where I'm tempted to do this to join in a mob against someone who's in the crosshairs of that mob's hatred. And then I think, how incredible is it that God is not like me? How incredible is it that God is not like me because we don't belong to or serve a God of violent mobs? When I think about all of those ancient gods that people used to worship, all of them were like notoriously bloodthirsty or vindictive, but not Yahweh. The God that we have all encountered in the flesh in Jesus is nothing like that at all. Because instead of being a God who sides with violent mobs, God is a God for that solitary figure who finds themselves in the crosshairs of violence and hatred. You think about those stories we've already told. Joseph may have been in the crosshairs of his brother's violence and hatred, but you can't read the story and not understand that God was with Joseph the whole time. And the woman at the well finds herself ready to be executed because of the condemnation of the mob, and who is the one that stands with her? Jesus. And of course we know that the Father is with the Son even as the shouts of crucify him 
rain down on Jesus' head. I am astounded by the reality that God is a God who stands with those who find themselves, for whatever reason, in the crosshairs of violence and hatred. I want you to think about what that says about the God that you know. And I also think that if we are honest, if we're honest with ourselves, if we consider the reality of our own sinfulness, we know that we're really not that different than that woman at the well. That we stand accused, and what's more, we all stand guilty of immense sin. And just like those Pharisees stood ready to execute her, the enemy's violent mob stands with rock in hand, hurling accusation and condemnation down on all of us. I guess I don't think about that that often, but the reality is that I'm in the crosshairs myself because I stand condemned. But the good news is that God in Christ stands with us in that moment against the violence and the hatred of the enemy. This is what uh, Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8. I've got it here on the screen. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, what are we going to say in response to all of this? That if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? That's incredible, isn't it? That there is no sin for which we stand guilty that makes God side with the violent mob against us. That there is no charge that can be leveled against you and I that would make the Father stand against His children. Because God is for us. And in that moment, who can be against us? Amazingly though, I think that's really only the half of it. Because as Jesus stands with us, Jesus is also setting us free from our own violence and hatred and helping us become the kind of people who can live in the world a new way. In particular, in light of the stories that we looked at in the story of Dr. King, which shapes the way that we're thinking about all of this today, we see that Jesus has set us free from violence and hatred so that we can, just like Jesus did for us, stand with and alongside those who find themselves in the crosshairs of violence and hatred. This is really the essence of what I want to get at today. Because Jesus has done this for us, we can and are called to stand with and alongside those who find themselves in the crosshairs of violence and hatred. Now, even a basic reading of the history of America, even up to today, would reveal that the American church, particularly the the white church in America, really has not done that when it comes to issues of race and racial justice. Even tragically, at times, church folk have perpetrated some really terrible things on this field. I have stories in my own family line that are exceedingly difficult for me to wrestle with, to make sense of. 
This is a tragedy for the story of the church in America. It's one that's worthy of immense confession and lament. But at the same time, the American church's sort of checkered history on race also highlights the opportunity that's present for us today. And that's an opportunity in some ways to realign or recapture what it means to be God's people on this front. Because it's the job of the church to be a prophetic alternative in the world. The church is called to be this living, breathing body that enacts a different way. So when people see us, they see an alternative to the way the world normally works. That's really what it means to be the church. They see a different thing. And so in a world full of violent mobs, how will we live differently? That's the question. In a world that is full of violence and hatred, what does it mean to be a different way? I mean, the violent mobs are everywhere. They may not look exactly like hoods and burning crosses, but the violent mobs are everywhere. Today, violent mobs look like when students of color are being harassed and abused on college campuses across the country in the wake of an election that seemed to give them permission to let out the worst racist things they could think of. Violent mobs looks like when my Muslim neighbors in my part of the city are beaten in the streets. The violent mob rears its head when Mexican immigrants are being taunted with shouts of, Go back to Mexico. That's what the violent mob looks like today, and it's everywhere. And I I don't have time to get into this, but I actually think those might not be the worst expressions of the violent mob. The most public things might not be the most dangerous things that the most dangerous things might be happening behind closed doors, out of sight, in the halls of legislators and policymakers. How can we be an alternative to that kind of hate and violence? You know, this sign has been popping up all over my neighborhood. Maybe you've seen this sign various places. It's popping up everywhere where I live in, in the city in response to all of these beatings in the street. It says, hate has no home here in lots of different languages. And I love this sign not only as an example of what it looks like to sort of be an alternative to the hate of the world, and also just to note that covenanters were on the ground floor of kind of making this thing happen. That's pretty cool. But the other thing is that I think that there's a metaphor in this. And, and I think it's because if, if, we, if hate has no home in the kingdom of God, and I know that we can all get on board with that, in the kingdom of God, hate is not at home. Then it cannot be that hate would be at home in the places over which we would pray, God, may your kingdom come here. Which is anywhere we are called to be God's people that we pray, God, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, then when we see hate, that must be resisted and overcome by a radically prophetic alternative. And who's going to do that if it's not the people of God? We have an opportunity. That opportunity doesn't come at the expense of repentance or reflection. But we have an opportunity. So what can we do? I had a few thoughts this week as I was preparing 
Julia Densmore is a community organizer, community developer, and, and she said this statement that I, that I watched her, and, and it was really powerful. She said, whenever you notice othering going on, we have to interrupt that. Whenever you notice othering going on, we have to interrupt that. And I think what she means by othering is when a powerful person or powerful people create a reason to hate or fear and then exclude and marginalize another person or another group of people. Anytime sort of people in control tell us that we should be afraid or hate this person or this group of people, that we should push them to the side, that is othering. And it's that that she suggests we have to interrupt. This is the woman at the well, the Pharisees saying to all of us, hate her, let's kill her. Othering is a favorite pastime of the mob. Othering is well at home in places like Roman Colosseums and Third Reich rallies and KKK claverns and unfortunately Facebook but it is not at home in the kingdom of God. Interrupting othering is Jesus bending down to draw in the sand. Interrupting othering is creating a safe place for that violently marginalized person while the angry mob is forced to confront their hypocrisy, to drop their stones, and to walk away. This is hate has no home here. Interrupting and rejecting the practice of othering seems to be very Christ-like behavior to me. So an interesting conversation here might be, how will we as Naperville Cove interrupt the othering that we see around us? I mean, first of all, are we doing it somehow? We need to be willing to ask that question. Are we doing it? But secondly, when we notice it happening in our community, how will we creatively, lovingly, prophetically stand in the gap? We have to interrupt the othering that happens all around us. A second question that I've been thinking about a lot is how will we demonstrate welcome for the stranger? How will we demonstrate welcome for the stranger? Or or the scripture uses all kinds of different words. Stranger, foreigner, immigrant. It's an issue that is serious and a consistent thread throughout all of the Bible. How will we welcome those who are not originally from here? Particularly because they are often singled out as recipients of the hate of the mob. We have churches throughout the covenant that are engaging in comprehensive immigrant outreach, but I think really the question that sort of gets at the root of this is, do the people that feel most maligned in our society, this could be immigrants, it could be any group of people, do the people who feel most maligned in society, do they sense that exclusion here, or do they sense the welcome of Christ in our midst? This is a question I've always asked myself as a pastor and always wrestled with. Do we have the kind of community that welcomes everyone with the welcome of Christ? Or do we, even in ways that we're not even trying to, further the exclusion 
and the marginalization of people who experience that all the time in our society. One of the things we talk about a lot in my area uh, specifically is how do we demonstrate love for others who live in under-resourced or vulnerable communities. Poverty is one of the biggest ways in which people are often singled out for shame and exclusion. So how will we resist the mob mentality against the so-called poor and learn to, as Jesus did, see ourselves as family with those who experience poverty? If you were to read Matthew 25, Jesus calls them sisters and brothers. Are we willing to see ourselves being in family relationships with those who live in the most vulnerable life situations? That's a tough Uh, thing to work through, and there's a lot of different layers to that. But one of the ways that I think about that question is when I think about those communities, I ask myself the question, is what I want for my kids what I want for those kids? Because if not, then I've, I've got work to do. In fact, we, we, we dealt with this. Uh, our boys played baseball a few years ago in uh, the, the league part of town that, that was full of kind of the highest poverty rate in our city in Indiana. And I remember watching them play through their t-ball years and watching all of the coaches that they were going to, to inherit. And I thought, this is, this is terrible. Somebody has to, I have to coach my own sons because I, I really don't want them to have a bad experience. And these coaches are, are, are too competitive and it's too chaotic. They're yelling at these kids and all of this. I don't want my boys to experience that. So I signed up to coach simply to make sure that my sons would not have that same experience. And, and it was the hardest summer of my life, uh, coaching 13 7-year-olds. Um, that's not my forte. But God used it in a really powerful way because I, I realized that the kids that I had on my team live in chaos constantly. Live in chaos constantly. It ends up sort of producing a league that, that feels that way all the time. I realized how selfish it was of me to decide to coach only to protect my kids. Because the other 13 Yahooligans on the team deserved that same experience. Right? And it was this three times a week lesson in the extent to which I prioritize my own children in even a simple way over these other kids. Is what I want for them, what I also want for them. And God used it in a powerful way. And that's, of course, a question that we can ask about the vision and mission of our church as well. Is what we want for us, what we want for our whole community? Put another way, do we see ourselves connected to our community in such a way that our lives are intertwined? As Jeremiah says, that if the city prospers, if the city flourishes, I flourish. Do I see it that way? That I'm willing to to intertwine my life with my community in such a way that I seek its flourishing before I seek my own? Can I encourage all of us, no matter where we are on this journey or our experience uh, of issues of race or justice or the like, all of us, I believe, are on a journey of repentance and alignment with God. I mean, I think that's what discipleship is anyways, a daily turning from ourself to what God would have for us. But on these things, I can promise you that as you lean into Racial righteousness. As you lean into justice, the Spirit will show you the areas of your life that are bent and broken. It's going to happen. So are we willing 
to embrace even that part, the part that hurts when we see our own sin exposed and lean into God's restorative work so that he could continue the good work that God's begun in us. The second thing I'll say is, is this, this idea of lenses. It's so comfortable to look through at the world through my own lens all the time. But are there ways that you can intentionally see the world from a different person's perspective, a person who is not like you, so that you see the map, you read the experience in a fuller and broader way? And finally, I guess I will encourage you toward courage to ask yourself the question, am I willing to stand against the hate? Am I willing to, as Jesus did, even absorb violence in my own body for the sake of those who have no one standing with them? Let's pray together. God, what incredibly good news it is that even when we stand guilty of sin and guilty of condemnation of the crowds, that you stand with us with incredible mercy and love and grace. That you welcome us into family and relationship with you through Jesus. And so our prayer this morning is that as Jesus stood with us against the violent mob, that when we see violence and hatred rising up against vulnerable people, people who have been pushed to the margins, populations of people who are historically oppressed or disenfranchised, that we would be willing to put our own lives on the line if need be, to, as a demonstration of your great grace and love, stand with those against the violence and hatred we see all around us. Help us, God, through your Spirit, to live a new way in a violent world. Amen.